This morning we come to the end of James's letter, a letter written to both describe and also to encourage living faith in Jesus. Throughout this letter, James has been concerned to show us that living faith doesn't just say the right things or even believe the right things, living faith also does the right things. True living faith leads us to live in obedience to God's Word. Any other kind of faith, James has told us, is a dead faith, which means it's no faith at all. And as he closes his letter, James paints a picture for us. He shows us as Christians how living faith makes a difference to our life together. What James is going to say in this closing section is not all that could be said, about our life together, but these are, they are indispensable things. James is going to tell us, as God's people, our life together requires trustworthiness, it requires prayer, and sometimes it will require rescue. These things are indispensable to Christian community, to the church. So let's read James's closing words. If you haven't turned there yet, it's page 1216 in the church Bible or in the larger print Bibles, 1884. James chapter 5, verse 12. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you ill? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the ill person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth, and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. This is God's Word. And I realize there are a couple of big ticket items right in the middle of this passage where James talks about healing and he talks about confessing our sins to one another. But that's not where James starts. So let's set our questions on the middle bit to one side just for a moment and notice the equally important point James wants to make in verse 12. 
It tells us as Christians, our life together requires trustworthiness. In our Bibles, verse 12 has been tagged on to the end of verses 7 to 11, and verses 13 to 20 are separated off as a new section. But that separation was not in the letter to begin with. That break has been put there in our English Bibles. But actually, it makes more sense to take verse 12 as the beginning of the new section. You can see James starts verse 12 with the words, above all. In other words, as I wrap things up now, as I bring what I've been saying to a conclusion, these are the points I want to leave you with. And those points are found in verses 12 to 20. In the first part of verse 12, James tells us, Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. Today, when we hear the word swear, we tend to think of bad language, swear words. But that is not what James is talking about. What he has in mind are oaths. An oath is a solemn pronouncement that's supposed to guarantee the truth of what you're saying. So, for example, sometimes when a person is accused of doing something wrong, they respond by saying, I swear to God I didn't do it. Or I swear on my life. Or I swear on my grandparents' grave. It wasn't me. Cross my heart and hope to die. Stick a needle in my eye. I don't know if kids still say that. But you get the idea. When someone comes out with that kind of thing, it's supposed to be an extra guarantee that they're telling the truth. And the unspoken part of it is, I may not tell the truth all the time, but I promise I'm telling the truth now. But James says to us, don't be like that. Don't drag in God to guarantee your truthfulness. Don't drag in your grandparents' grave either, or stuff about sticking needles in your eye. Don't swear by heaven or earth or anything else. Just tell the truth all the time. In the second half of verse 12, all you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. So as Christians, oaths should not be necessary to guarantee the truthfulness of what we're saying. People should be able to trust our simple yes or no. Truthfulness should be our standard mode of operating, not just something we rise to on important occasions. We should be known as truthful, trustworthy people. In the smallest everyday things, as well as the big moments when the spotlight is on us. Some people have read this and wondered, well, is James saying then that we should refuse to take an oath if someone requires it from us? Like in a court of law, for example. Well, no, I can't see any indication James would object to us taking an oath if someone asks us to. What he's forbidding here is you and me taking an oath on our own initiative when we have not been asked to. Taking an oath is a way of saying, I know you might not be able to trust me normally, but you can now. 
now that I'm swearing to God about this. Instead of that, James says, trustworthiness is just to be normal for us. And surely this applies to more than just not telling outright lies. Surely this includes exaggeration, embellishing the truth, or telling half-truths. Isn't that kind of thing just standard practice outside of the church? Bend the truth to make yourself look better and make your competitors look worse? Present your statistics in a misleading way so they support your point, even if they don't really support your point? And doesn't this apply to misquoting others? Being careless when we report what they've said? Spicing it up a bit? So it's more interesting when we pass it on to others? That is being like the devil. Read the beginning of Genesis chapter 3 and see how the devil misquotes God. That's why James says those who aren't trustworthy will be condemned. They're following the devil instead of following Jesus. And doesn't James's point here apply to our commitments as well? If you make a commitment, James is saying, stick to it. See it through, even if it's inconvenient for you to do that. Be careful to keep your word instead of being careless about it. It shouldn't require a legal document for you and me to keep our promises. Our word should be enough. And can you see how this gives a solid platform for our life together as God's people? If we can trust each other like this, our relationships will thrive, won't they? There will be more openness among us. There will be less suspicion among us. So let's commit each of us to be men and women who can be trusted all the time. Even in things that seem to be insignificant. Now James adds another aspect of our life together. It requires prayer. First, James mentions normal, everyday prayer. In verse 13, Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Songs of praise are really prayers that we sing. So whether we're on one of the ups of life or on one of the downs, James is saying that prayer should be our normal thing. He's saying there should never be a situation where prayer isn't relevant. Whatever the troubles, whatever the joys, just bring them all to God. But then James highlights a situation of extraordinary prayer. Verse 14. Is anyone among you ill? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the ill person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, 
they will be forgiven. Just notice the details here. This is a situation where someone is ill. What kind of ill? Seriously ill. In verse 15, James talks about them being raised up. So this is a person who has been laid low. This is not a runny nose or an ingrown toenail. And the fact that the elders go to the sick person implies the person may not be well enough to go to the elders. So this is serious physical illness, and notice who takes the initiative here. It's the sick person. They call the elders. The elders do not offer healing ministry to the sick person. The elders do not advertise a healing service and invite sick people to come. The sick person makes the call. And notice, too, it's the elders who are called. James does not say, let the sick man or woman call the person who has the gift of healing. No, call the ordinary garden variety elders of your church. That's interesting. Because it suggests that when the Apostle Paul talks about people who have gifts of healing, maybe he's not thinking of certain individuals who have a permanent ability to bring healing. He may be thinking of gifts of healing as one-time things. On certain occasions, God may give a group of ordinary garden-variety elders the ability to bring healing. They may, in that particular situation, have the gift of healing for that situation. That seems to be the implication of what James is telling us here. At the moment, we're just noticing details. The sick person calls the elders. Then, James says, the elders are to pray over the sick person and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. Some people have wondered if the oil is a reference to medicine. And certainly there are places in Scripture where oil is used as a medicine. We might think of the Good Samaritan. If you know that story that Jesus told, he used oil and wine to treat the wounds of the man attacked by robbers. But it is unlikely that James would prescribe oil as medicine for any and every situation of illness. And in fact, the main use of anointing oil in Scripture is symbolic. It's a sign of God's favor and touch on the person who's being anointed. And that certainly doesn't rule out medical help for the sick person. As Christians, we are big fans of medical help. We believe medicine and medical care are gifts from God themselves. And Christians should take advantage of those gifts. When medicine works, and when the surgeon carries out a successful surgery, it is God's work through them. He is to be praised when medicine and surgery work. So we are for medicine. But the point is, James is not envisaging here that the elders will give medicine or medical care. That's not what the oil is for in this situation. 
As we said, it's symbolic of God's favor and touch. And then just before we get to the big ticket item in the first half of verse 15, notice the second half of verse 15. James says, if the person has sinned. In other words, when someone is ill, we must not assume it's because of sin. It's if they have sinned. But we must not assume the opposite either that their illness couldn't possibly have anything to do with sin. There are examples in Scripture of people who were sick because of some sin in their lives. And there are examples of people who had sickness that could not be traced back to some sin. So if you're sick, do not take it for granted you're being disciplined by God for some sin. It may not be the case. It wasn't the case with Job. But do take the time to consider carefully, is there some sin you've been tolerating and refusing to let go of? 1 Corinthians tells us that was the case with some of the sick people in the Corinthian church. You can find that towards the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Now, by this point, we've dealt with a fairly straightforward details. We know what the situation is. And so now we are ready to look at the elephant in the passage, sitting there large and unmissable at the start of verse 15. Speaking of the elders who have come to pray, James says, the prayer offered in faith will make the ill person well. The Lord will raise them up. Whose faith are we talking about here? It's the elder's faith. This statement cannot be used to say to a sick person, you'll be healed if you just have enough faith. Nor can it be used to say to a sick person who hasn't been healed, it's because you didn't have enough faith. This is not about the sick person's faith at all. So then, is this about the elders having enough faith? If the sick person isn't healed, is it because of the elders' lack of faith? I doubt it. For one thing, we know from Scripture, it is not always God's will to heal. Yes, God has promised that in the end, all His people will be fully and gloriously healed. Our eternal future is a future of perfect healing. But this side of heaven, physical healing is only ever going to be temporary. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, but Lazarus did die again. As wonderful as his healing was, it was only temporary. And while we are guaranteed the eternal healing if we belong to Jesus... We are not guaranteed the temporary healing. It is not always God's will to give it. Just to give you an example from Scripture of that, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul speaks about a thorn in the flesh that he suffered with. 
Paul says he pleaded three times with the Lord to take it away. We don't know what the thorn in the flesh was, but it was almost certainly some physical illness. Three times Paul pleaded with the Lord to take it away, and the Lord said, no. The Lord went on to explain that he had a purpose for that suffering in Paul's life. But what the Lord did promise to do was supply Paul with grace and power in the midst of his weakness and illness. So Paul remained sick, not because he didn't have enough faith to be healed, and not because he couldn't find any church elders with enough faith for him to be healed. Paul remained sick because it was not God's will to heal him. So here in our passage, we know James is not saying healing is a question of summoning up enough faith. And in fact, the New Testament says faith is something God himself distributes among his people according to his will. Yes, we all have faith in Jesus. That's faith is something every Christian has in common. But beyond that, that saving faith in Jesus, the New Testament speaks of faith as a gift that God may give to certain Christians in certain situations. And I think that's what James is speaking about here. This is not a guarantee there will be healing in every instance. It's a guarantee there will be healing in some instances. The sick person is to call the elders, the elders are to pray for healing, and the Lord may, he may, give the elders the faith, the conviction, the assurance that in this instance, the Lord will heal in response to their prayers. What that means is the elders do not take it lightly when someone asks them to come and pray for healing. They have to be praying in advance of their visit to the sick person. And when they do pray over the sick person, they do not announce boldly what God is going to do. They ask boldly for healing and then see what God will do. Will he choose to provide the sick person with grace and power in the midst of ongoing illness, as he did with Paul? Or will he choose to take the illness away, as he did in other situations in Scripture? We pray boldly for healing and then see what God will do. If the person is not healed, we don't go away thinking it was a waste of time. Because we know if they're not healed physically, God will minister to them in their sickness. And as the end of verse 15 tells us, if the process has brought any sin to light, if it's prompted the sick person to repent of it, they will be forgiven. That oppressive burden of unrepented sin will be dealt with. And who would dare to say that was a failed endeavor? If the process of calling the elders resulted in restored fellowship with God for that sick person. 
If you're wondering whether your elders in this church are open to doing what James describes here, we certainly are. We believe God can heal miraculously, and we believe that on occasion He does. We also believe that prayer for the sick is never in vain. Even if God chooses not to heal in a particular instance, He will minister grace and power to the Christian in their situation. What James does not want us to do at this point is to begin thinking that only the elders have the responsibility and privilege to pray for members of the church. Having dealt with normal everyday prayer in verse 13 and extraordinary prayer in verses 14 and 15, now he wants us to see that in our life together, prayer is a powerful ministry for every Christian. Look at verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. James says, confess your sins to each other. That's the other big ticket item in this passage, in the sense that it gets our attention. But there's no hint that James sees this as a formal thing. He's not suggesting we have confession sessions in the church as organized events. This is about developing deep relationships. It's worth just pausing personally to consider this. Do you have someone you can talk to about your deepest struggles and failures and fears? Do you have someone like that in the church family? Or is it the case that all of your relationships are superficial, where you're just putting on an act with others? Is there anyone in the church who really knows you? There ought to be. Someone you could come to and bring your sin into the open. Mark Dever says this, Hiding sin is like hiding a time bomb. We need to expose sin to the withering forces of prayer, accountability, and love. If you and I are going to benefit from those sin-withering forces, we have to know each other. And that means not only being willing to share your struggles with someone else, it also means being a person someone else might come to with their struggles. So again, let's ask ourselves personally. When people talk to you, do you give them the honor of seriously listening to them? Or are you already thinking of a response before you've properly heard what they're saying? Do all of your conversations end up being about you? Or are you developing the ability to let some conversations be about the other person and their concerns and hopes? 
thinking back to verse 12, are you known to be a trustworthy person? Someone who can be trusted with the confession of others? Or are you known as someone who will leave the conversation and broadcast what you've just heard? Of course, it's unwise to promise silence before you've heard what the other person has to say. In some cases, things just have to be passed on for issues of safety and safeguarding. But those are the exceptions. Would someone else be wise to share their issue with you? Would you condemn them if they did? Or equally unhelpful, would you excuse their sin like it didn't matter? If someone is mentioning their sin to you, it's because they've already been convicted that it does matter. Your role is neither to excuse their sin or condemn them for it. Your role is to pray with them sharing their burden as you bring it to God together. And notice in verse 16, it is not just the elders who are to pray for the sick. It's a ministry we all have. Certainly our weekly prayer emails often mention those who are sick. So this is a ministry we can all be part of. And it's also a ministry we have to be sensible about. A few minutes ago, we said every Christian is headed for eternal, perfect healing. Until then, physical healing is temporary. So we have to be sensible. If someone is 100 years old with dementia and a terribly weak body, might it be time to stop praying for God to give that brother or sister another few months of painful life? Might it be time instead to ask God to take his precious child home to his presence where they will be fully and eternally healed? As Christians, we do not support euthanasia or assisted suicide. And the reason we don't support those things is we do not have the right to decide when our life ends. But at the same time, as Christians, we don't have the attitude that life must always be preserved at all costs. When a brother or sister's body is just worn out, it's appropriate to recognize it would be a mercy and a gift for God to take them home to be with Him. Life is precious. It's perfectly right and good to want it to continue. But we are not to view it as something we have to cling to as if it's the most precious thing there is. If we're Christians, there are even greater things in store for us beyond this life. So at a certain point, we will be ready to accept the time for prayers for healing might be past. It might be time instead to pray for the brother or sister 
to pass into perfect peace with their Father in heaven. But whether we're praying for temporary healing or going home to eternal rest, James wants us to see our prayers are powerful and effective. If you're a Christian, you are what verse 16 calls a righteous person. You have been made righteous by God himself through the work of Jesus Christ. And as a man or woman made righteous in Christ, you have the powerful weapon of prayer. James uses the example of Elijah, the Old Testament prophet. Now, Elijah stands out as a big character in Scripture. Certainly, God did big things through Elijah. But James isn't so interested in Elijah's big reputation. James wants us to see in verse 17, Elijah was a human being even as we are. James says we should focus not on Elijah as a Bible superhero. We should focus on Elijah as an ordinary man just like us. An ordinary man who had access to the powerful weapon of prayer. Just like we do. But maybe the difficulty many of us have is not so much grasping that Elijah was like us. Maybe our difficulty is believing that prayer truly is a powerful weapon. If we scratched below the surface, might some of us have to admit this is the major reason we don't come to prayer meetings or to prayer services? Could it be because deep down we don't think prayer makes any difference? Well, James wants to change our minds about prayer. Look at verse 17. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. One important thing to note about what Elijah prayed for is that it was not random, nor was it selfish. He hadn't fallen out with the farmer next door and he wanted to ruin his harvest. That wasn't the case. The book of Kings, 1 Kings, gives the context of Elijah's prayer. This drought that came, it was a wake-up call for the people of Israel. It was like an alarm going off to rouse them from their idolatry and their sinfulness. So they would turn back to God. The drought was a foretaste of greater judgment to come. So the people would turn from their sin before that greater judgment came. So the point is, Elijah did not pray according to his own whims. He was not praying against the rain because he had his summer holidays coming up and he wanted to maximize his sunbathing. Elijah was praying for God's glory and the good of his people. That's why his prayers were powerful and effective. And that is what makes our prayers 
similarly powerful and effective. You and I don't know every detail of what God has planned for the future, but we do know some of his plans for the future. We know his promises. We know what he loves and what he hates. We know his concern for his people. We know his desire that to see lost sinners come to repentance. We know a lot, actually, about God's will. And when we pray in line with God's will and purposes and plans, we can pray with great confidence. Knowing our prayers will be powerful and effective. They will change things. Our life together requires trustworthiness, prayer, and finally, rescue. Verse 19. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Living faith in Jesus will not stop at getting our own lives right. Living faith will show itself in our deep concern for our brothers and sisters. In their struggles and their sickness, yes, and also when they wander away. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, nothing can be more cruel than that tenderness that consigns another to his sin. You and I might be tempted to think it's tenderness to leave a brother or sister undisturbed in their sin, to tiptoe around them and never challenge them because we don't want to upset them. But that's cruel. Actually, it's selfish. God put us together, not just to fend for ourselves, but to fend for each other. Now, we saw back in chapter 4, you and I are not called to try and dictate how each other lives. Most of the time, we leave someone's decisions between them and God because we seldom know all the circumstances of their lives. We don't have all the information. But what James is saying here is, there comes a point when a brother or sister is clearly wandering away. And we must make efforts to bring them back. We must make rescue efforts. Even at the risk of causing offense, and being accused of meddling. I know that's maybe not English, but James is not calling us to be English. He's calling us to be Christian. Wouldn't you want someone to come after you if you started to wander away? Don't you hope there's a brother or sister in this fellowship who loves you enough who cares enough to do that if it needs to be done? And so shouldn't you be willing to do it for others? 
And this passage, the only bit that was just about the elders' responsibility was verses 14 and 15. The rest of it is for all of us, including this rescue responsibility. Verse 20 says, we may be able to save the wandering brother or sister from death and cover over a multitude of sins, meaning our rescue efforts may bring them back to God's forgiveness and salvation. So is there a friend in this fellowship you haven't seen much of lately? Do you love them enough to check how they're doing? And if there's a friend who begins to wander from the truth, do you love them enough to do what you can to bring them back? And if you know that you're beginning to wander away, even though you're still here, please don't shut yourself off from these brothers and sisters. Don't hide from them. Talk to them. Pray with them. Don't be content to wander away. Faith in Jesus, James told us at the beginning of his letter, has given us new birth. We have a glorious future ahead of us as Christians. And in the meantime, we have a new family to love and honor and fight for. So let's commit to do that through our trustworthiness, through our prayer, and through our willingness to work for the rescue of those who wander away. Our final songs are songs of commitment to follow God and to love his people beneath the cross of Jesus. So let's stand and sing these as prayers.
to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. <laughs> 